if you know somebody in Baltimore or if you are interested in moving to Baltimore to be a part of this church plant, please let us know. Uh, we would love to, for you to be a part of this team that Lord willing be launching here in just a few months as our latest church plant um, that, uh, that we get a chance to do. Um, I want to begin this morning by uh, just sharing you with you um, a very important, I think, uh, mile marker in my own life. Uh, if you have been around the Summit Church for any length of time, you've heard me talk about the ministry of a man, Dr. E.C. Sheehan, whose impact on my life uh, really cannot be overestimated. Um, he was the pastor that, uh, that was preaching at, uh, in a church in Winston-Salem. My parents moved there when I um, had been newly born, who uh, my parents disconnected from church and from God. This uh, man um, brought my parents into the church. They were saved. Um, uh, he led me to Christ. He discipled me and my whole family. Um, he passed away this past Friday. He went to be with Jesus and uh, it is something that, you know, when he's 97, you can't really say it's unexpected, but um, it still provides a moment to reflect on the goodness of God to you and a chance um, for me to reflect on how our obedience and our faithfulness has an eternal impact on other people. When I look at my children, I'm looking at four children whose eternities are changed because of the faithful preaching and the witness of, of one man and his wife. Um, I, uh, you know, I posted something to that effect on Facebook and one of you posted back right underneath mine. They said, well, then I guess indirectly my eternity changed because of this man too, because it was through you and the Summit Church um, that God saved me first from suicide and then ultimately from sin and death and hell itself. Um, you never can um, overestimate the impact that simple faithfulness, simply speaking in spheres. I mean, you don't all do what I do. You don't talk to as many people as I talk to but there are people in your lives that the only chance they will have to hear the gospel is because you faithfully declare it to them. And something tells me that one day when you walk through the gates of heaven, being able to, under, to see the people that God brought to Christ through that faithful witness, it was going to blow your mind. Um, Dr. Sheehan had this famous thing he used to always say, um, or, uh, he, just, he would always talk about the second coming of Jesus, and he would say, maybe today. Uh, to think about the reunion that he had with his, um, his wife, who died many years before him, and uh, just what it means to enter into eternal rest is something that has renewed me and refocused me, and I hope it does you. Um, in case you are new here, you may not know the um, man that I'm talking about, E.C. Sheehan, is Chris Gaynor's grandfather, um, who Chris Gaynor is our longest-serving staff member here, uh, and so you can certainly be in prayer for them and their family as, um, as, they, as they go through this. Um, we are in week number four of a series that we are calling Can't Believe, in which we are looking at seven different kinds of people in the Gospel of John who, for whatever reason, just could not believe. Um, and we're looking at what the reasons were and then how Jesus dealt with each of them. I hope this has been a good series for you, especially if you're newer to church. Um, I got a note from a Chapel Hill student this week who said, Eight of my friends at Chapel Hill have become believers in the last three weeks through this series. So um, I know that God is using it among people. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime you think, should we clap now, and there's a question, just go ahead and do it, okay? And uh, nobody joins you, I'll make fun of everybody else and tell them that you were the one that was right. Um, this week we are, uh, this week we're going to look at the disappointed by that, I mean those who can't believe because they think God did not show up when he should have. It's some miracle that he didn't do, some question that he did not answer, something that they think that he should have done, but he didn't. 
It was something you were waiting on, and you just can't understand why it is that God didn't do it, because if you were God and you loved you as much as God says he loves you, then you would have done this. I recently read an article about Ted Turner, who is, of course, the creator of CNN and TBS and a number of other cable stations, multi-billionaire. He became a a very outspoken atheist when he was in his early 20s. He's backed off a, a good bit from it now. But what's really interesting is that when he was in high school, he was completely on fire for Jesus. He was planning to be a missionary. That uh, was his agenda while he was in high school. When he was 15 years old, though, his younger sister, Mary Jane, who was 12 at the time, contracted lupus, a degenerative tissue disease. And for several years, he watched as her body was racked with pain. She constantly was vomiting, and he returned home from school quite often to her screams filling the house. He would come home, he would hold her hand, he would try to comfort her, he prayed earnestly for her recovery. She prayed that she would die to be released from the misery. After many years of, of misery and struggling, she succumbed to the disease and she died. Well, Ted's dad, Ed Turner, said at that time, if that is the kind of God that he is, then I want nothing to do with him. That had a, a very powerful effect on Ted, and Ted lost his faith. He said, I, I was taught that God was love and that God was powerful, and I could not understand how someone so innocent and precious as my sister should be made or allowed to suffer so. On March 5th, 1963, Ted's dad had breakfast with his wife. He went upstairs, put a 38 special inside of his mouth, and pulled the trigger. That sealed the deal for Ted. If that's the type of God that he is, then I want nothing to do with that kind of God. Bart Ehrman, our, um, our famous friendly neighborhood skeptic here at Chapel Hill, says that this is the reason he lost his faith. He got a lot of stuff out there about New Testament and problems and all that kind of stuff, he says, but when it really comes down to it, he says this in one of his books, and I quote, I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me and could give me an explanation that would make sense, even of the torture, dismemberment, and slaughter of innocent children, and the explanation was so overpowering that I actually could understand, then I would be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. On the other hand, I don't think that's going to happen. And hoping that it will is probably just wishful thinking. A leap of faith made by those who are desperate both to remain faithful to a God they want to believe in and to cope with the harsh realities of their world. Now even if you haven't lost your faith, I'd say a lot of us have gone through times where we genuinely wonder, I don't understand if God is who God says he is, why that there are certain things that he's doing that just, I, I don't get it. God, why would this happen? One of my heroes of the faith, C.S. Lewis, 1960, lost his wife to a painful bout with bone cancer. And right after her death in 1961, he wrote, he said, I can't understand why God always seems to be there for me when things are going well, telling me what he expects of me. And he says, quote, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic that silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? That was a long time, by the way, after he became a Christian. That was after he wrote Mere Christianity. Somehow that quote never makes it on everybody's favorite C.S. Lewis quotes on their Facebook page. I've never seen that one. Now, Lewis would end up making it through this, 
And his faith ultimately will be strengthened by it, but he articulates what many of us feel. And that's our question this weekend is what, what do you do? What do you, what do you do when God disappoints you? Because you got a few options. One, you can lose your faith, like Ted Turner, Bart Ehrman. You can say, you know what? God's not there, and he probably's never been there. For a lot of people, what you'll do is you'll isolate the question from your faith. I find a lot of Christians do this. They, 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 they just don't think about it. It's too painful to walk away from your faith, so you're just going to isolate your faith from that part. But the problem with that is it results in a superficial faith that doesn't really love God because you can't love God, and you can't love a God that you won't let into certain parts of your heart and mind. So you just got Christians that kind of give moralistic, pietistic answers to things that don't really deal with the pain that's going on in their lives and certainly not going on dealing with the pain that's going on in the lives of people around them. The third thing you can do is you can let those questions press you deeper into faith. I will tell you that it is the times of greatest struggle for me, the times where I have the most questions, the times of deepest doubt that God has used to show me who he is and the sweetness of his presence. One of my other heroes, Charles Spurgeon, says that doubt is a, like a foot poised. A foot poised to go forwards or backwards. You can certainly have doubt drive you backwards into unbelief, but it is also certain that you will never be able to walk forward until you pick up your foot. It is precisely in that moment of question, precisely when you say, God, how deep is this pain and where are you? That is the place where God will show you that his love, his grace, his plan is deeper than the pain of despair. And that is the question that is being considered in John chapter 11. Now, for some of you, again, this, the question may not be this extreme. You might not be about to lose your faith, but you know what? You're genuinely frustrated with God. You're frustrated with God because your life has not turned out at this point the way that you thought it should. All your friends, for example, are getting married and you're not. And you're like, God, what's wrong with me? How come you're not giving this to me? All your friends are getting jobs or promotions, but it's not working out for you. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, it seemed like all my friends were getting these incredible, lucrative ministry, well, lucrative is not really what you put with ministry, but they were getting these incredible jobs, you know, and they had girlfriends, and they were getting married, and I was single, and I was working at a restaurant, basically running the French fry machine. That's not an exaggeration. I was like, God, what's wrong with me? I, 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 am I that much worse? How come they're walking in all this blessing, and nothing seems to be happening for me? God, why? I'm, I'm disappointed. Or maybe at this point in your marriage, you thought you'd be having children, but you're not. Or maybe you're approaching retirement and it's just not looking good. Or maybe your kids didn't turn out the way that you thought they should. Maybe at this point you thought you'd been enjoying sweet fellowship with your kids and, and your grandkids, but they're estranged from you. Or maybe you're 40 years old and your husband just walked out on you. Or maybe you're 40 and your parents just got divorced. Then you're like, God, I just don't understand it. How could this be your perfect plan? And to make any sense, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus. He was from Bethany, which is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, what are they hoping for? What are they hoping for? I mean, it, it didn't take a genius to figure that out. I mean, they, they, they'd seen what he could do. They'd seen him heal. Surely if Jesus would heal complete strangers who managed to get a hold of the hem of his garment as he's walking from one place to another, surely, for a friend that he loves so much, surely he would come and heal. Verse four, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
And now one of the strangest words in the entire New Testament. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So, does that word make any sense to you right there? I mean, it seems to me, but would make better sense there. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Lazarus and Martha, but when he heard Lazarus was ill, he waited two days. That's not what it says. It says so. That doesn't make any sense. That's like me saying, I love my wife so much, so I forgot her birthday. I didn't get her anything. You just don't, you, it doesn't make any sense to use the word so right there. Verse seven, then after this, he said to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's trying to give them sort of some inside knowledge. So these, you know, intellectual geniuses, they respond this way, verse 12 and 13. They're like, well, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. Verse 14, so Jesus told them plainly. You gotta read that. Jesus told them and rolled his eyes is basically what that says. <laughs> Lazarus has died. I, mean, I, I think Jesus probably spent a lot of time in the Gospels rolling his eyes. He's like, really, guys? That's what you thought I meant? You thought I meant that he was taking a nap and I'm gonna walk for two days, go wake him up? Thank you. Thank you for being so insightful. Verse 17, I'm really feeling good about entrusting the future of the church to you 12. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. You see, Jews had a belief that someone, after they die, their spirit kind of hangs around their body for three days, waiting on the chance for resuscitation. But after three days, that chance is gone, so then the spirit goes off to wherever it's going to be, to heaven or to hell or whatever. So the fact that Jesus waits four days means that he's showing that Lazarus is not just mostly dead, Princess Bride, He's dead, dead. He's full on dead. He can't get deader than Lazarus. Four days. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. See, Martha's got the same problem with God that we do. God, where were you? God, you could have fixed this. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? I told you in enough time. You could have come. Why didn't you come? You almost, you got to hear the acerbic element that laces what she says there. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died, but you weren't here, and that's why he died. Disappointment. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, who had just graduated from seminary, said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I've seen the Kirk Cameron movie. I know how all this works out. Verse 25, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, I believe that you are the son of God. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now when Mary came to him where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, and Jesus wept. Literally in the Greek it says, and Jesus burst into tears. I want to focus here on how Jesus responds to these two sisters because I think understanding what Jesus says to those who are disappointed hinges on the two different answers that he gave to these sisters. You see, what Mary and Martha said to Jesus was exactly the same, verbatim. Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. But the reaction Jesus gives to both of them is completely different. And that is not because he loved one more than the other. That is not even because they had different personalities. It is because when you walk through disappointment, when you understand what Jesus is saying to you, it's got to include both of these elements. These are the ways that Jesus responds to those who are disappointed. So let's look first at Martha. Martha gets a theological answer. 
He gives a theological answer. I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who lives and believes in me will never really die. Even when he does die, he's not really gonna be dead because I'm gonna reverse all that. Let me stop here just for a few minutes, okay? Let me give you a theological case for suffering. Let me give you the theological answer for suffering. You see, the objection is, if God is so good and God could stop suffering, then why doesn't he? The fact that he doesn't stop suffering, does that prove that he's not really there? There are three important biblical truths to understand about suffering. You gotta get all three of these. If you have one without the other two, it's gonna collapse in on itself. So you gotta get all three of them. They're relatively simple, but you gotta have all three together. Number one, suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. Our suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. God created the world with no suffering. He created it perfect. He created it in a condition that Jewish people called shalom. Shalom meant harmony. It meant everything acted in harmony. There was no disease, there was no death, there was no global warming, there was no injustice, there was no divorce. Everything was functioning as it should. There was no pain, no tears. It was beautiful, it was shalom, it was peace. It was our sin, our rebellion, that interrupted that peace and brought God's, God's curse of death upon ourselves. You see, most of the objections that are raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we as a human race deserve good things, that we're owed good things, and God is unjust in not giving them to us. So we talk about the problem of evil, and that problem is, why do bad things happen to all, all, all of us good, innocent people? But you see, the Bible takes an entirely opposite approach. As a race, we rebelled against God, a rebellion that each of us voluntarily participated in, and the just result of that was the curse of death. What we deserve is death. The fact that there's still good in the world, the fact that they, we got it this morning and there's sunshine on our faces, or not so much this morning, but the fact that there is sunshine, the fact that we have food in our stomachs, that we have friends, that we have happiness, that's all grace. And the fact that God has given us a space to repent of our rebellion and a space to teach our children to repent, that is unspeakable grace. The Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil so much as it marvels at amazing grace. That's a fundamental paradigm shift. The Bible does not wrestle with the problem of evil so much as it marvels at amazing grace. Jesus demonstrated that in one of the most politically incorrect stories there is about him that you rarely hear people refer to because people don't know what to do with it. It's a story in Luke 13 when evidently what had happened outside of Jerusalem, there was a tower that fell and killed 18 people. And so the scuttlebutt, the scuttlebutt around Jerusalem was, were these 18 people more wicked than everybody else? And God finally saw them at the same place at the same time and thought, now I got them, boom, drops the tower on and squashes all of them. It was that what God was doing. And so they asked that to Jesus. And Jesus' response, at first it sounds like he's not answering the question. But basically he says this, he says no. Then he says verily, verily, and he drops the truly, truly on him. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you're sitting around befuddled because you can't figure out why this bad thing happened to those people. I'm telling you a better question is not why did it happen to them, but why did it not happen to you? Because all of us are in a condition, all of us are in a place where we deserve the judgment of God. That's why the curse of death is here. You see, for a person to look at heaven and yell at God and say, God, why are you letting this happen to us? To put God on trial for our suffering as if somehow he was unjust is what Jewish people called chutzpah. Chutzpah, which they defined as the audacity of a guy who kills his mom and dad and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. You can't do that. 
But you can't kill your mom and dad and then appeal to the court for mercy because you're an orphan. You caused that. So we sit around asking, why is all this bad stuff happening in the world? We're why it's all happening in the world. We sin. God didn't create it that way. So the question is not why me. The better question is why not me? So truth number one is all the suffering in the world is the result of the curse of death for our sin. Now, let me make sure I clarify this because I don't want you to, to misinterpret this. I am not saying that you ever look at a particular instance of suffering and tie it to a particular sin. The Bible never tells us to think that way, that this bad thing happened because of that bad thing you did back there. Well, he got cancer because he wasn't a good husband. Or you had a miscarriage because God was paying you back for your sexual promiscuity in college. That is never how the Bible instructs us to think about suffering, never. We live in a world of suffering because we rebelled against God and that suffering affects us all because we all as a race participated in that curse and it affects us kind of indiscriminately, if I could use it that way. It's just part of the world that we live in. The curse runs rampant in the world and it affects all people and it's not that one instance is paying you back for a particular sin. It is a general curse on the entire rebellion. Does that make sense? Number two, here's the second thing. God in his love and mercy has reversed the curse by suffering it in our place. God reversed the curse by suffering it in our place. The only truly innocent sufferer ever in history was Jesus. He was the only man to walk the earth ever to live entirely free from rebellion and thus entirely exempt from the curse of death. But when Jesus got to the end of his life, rather than being rewarded for his submission, he voluntarily submitted to the curse so that he could take it in our place. When he did that, he overturned the curse and started the process of healing. That healing begins by canceling our sin debt because Jesus nailed that to the cross and reconciling us to God. That dramatically affects our inward psychological state, which soon overflows to our relationships. One day soon, it will extend to our bodies when they are resurrected perfect and without pain, and Jesus' healing will eventually extend to all corners of the world as God reestablishes shalom in every corner of our world, and God heals everything so that it's all as he created it to be because he took our corruption and he nailed it to a cross and he disarmed every abusive power and put it away forever in the grave so that his eternity that he has dreamed about from the beginning could be the reality that we live in. In other words, Jesus is the one who will make the oceans recede and heal the planet. That's all covered underneath the cross of Jesus Christ. That's, he started the process of healing by dying on a cross and the first thing he heals is us as he reconciles us to God and eventually it works its all the way out to the rest of the world. Number three, God now uses our suffering, ours, the church, mine and yours, he uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and for our good. For his glory means that there are some things that can be best demonstrated about God to the world in our suffering, and there are things about God's glory that can be demonstrated by our suffering um, better than they can any other way. For our good means there are some things that God can teach us about himself through our pain better than he can any other way. Now, there's a lot of people that balk at that last point right there. And they say, whoa, wait, all pain? All pain is for God's glory and our good? What about the Holocaust? Are you really going to tell me that some Jewish families out there saying, yeah, thank God for the Holocaust. It did our family so much good and we're grateful for it now? How, how could you say, or about 9-11, how would you say that God brought good out of that? But see, you're forgetting truth number one when you ask that. Truth number one is that the suffering is the just result of the curse of death on our sin. We live in that world under the curse of sin, and watch this, just like the sun comes up and randomly shines on both good people and bad people, the curse of death in the world in some ways indiscriminately affects us all. 
Now you say, well, does that mean that God is not sovereign over all of it? No, yes, or yes, he is sovereign. But you have to expand your understanding of sovereignty. This is what I feel like I say when somebody identifies themselves as a Calvinist or Arminian. I'm like, whatever it is, you probably have to expand your understanding of sovereignty. Think of it like this. you got 100 people standing in a field, right? And the sun comes up. The sun does not, like, choose different people to shine on. You, 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 not you don't deserve it. You, you don't, not you. It doesn't do that. It just shines on all of them. In a sense, it almost is like it's random. When the same way the curse of death operates in the world, which causes disease, deteriorating relationships, and accidents, and it extends to us all. I'm not saying every single bad act on earth leads to a good act, as if every Jewish family that died in the Holocaust can say, look at the good that came to my family through that. No, sometimes the system as a whole serves the bigger picture of God's glory, which is for our good, as we see the glory of God, his holiness, and his majesty. That is, sometimes it doesn't work so much on the individual level, like this produced that, it is on the whole, the whole thing is working for God's glory and our good. But for the believer, hear this, for the believer, for you, however, God has taken the sting out of death, all right, and now promised to use everything in your life, everything is going to produce something good. That's something he does for the believer. That's why Paul would say all things are working together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's why Joseph would look at people who, create, who, who, who committed great injustice against him, sold him into slavery, and at the end of his life, Joseph would look at them and say, you meant it for evil, but God repurposed it for good. Repurposed it. It means you had a bad motive, but God trumped that bad motive and repurposed it, and God repurposed it for good. It's why Paul would say in Ephesians 1.11 that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will for the church that we would resound to the praise of his glory. So I don't want you to, to confuse that. There's a curse of death that's going on in the world. It is for believers that God promises to take every single thing that has happened and use redemptively for your good and his glory because you are the ones that he is redeeming and working in. Let me show you how this plays out in this story right here in John 11. Because in it, you're gonna, see, you're gonna see all those truths I just gave you, you're gonna see all of them present, and you're also gonna get a pattern for all suffering that you ever go through. Okay, all right, here we go. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, um, Lord, you see, the problem is, by this time, there's gonna be an odor because he's been dead four days. Men, in general, stink right? Especially in those days. You show me a man that hasn't bathed in four days and has had on the same clothes for four days, he really stinks. You show me a man that also hasn't breathed in four days, he definitely stinks. And Mary's like, he's stunk in life, he's going to stink right now, so I wouldn't do that. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they might believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face now wrapped with a cloth. What did that look like? I mean, if, if his feet are bound with hands, he's like a mummy. I mean, did he roll out? Is that what he did? Is he, was, he trying to, was he angry? I'd be angry if I'd been hanging out with God the Father and all the angels for four days and all of a sudden you rip me about, put me in a thing and wrap my face up. And he's like, trying to talk through it. And, he's, and Jesus is like, unbind him and let him go. Now watch this. Martha had warned Jesus not to open the stone because it had been four days and she said the body would stink. 
But Jesus said that they should do it anyway because he knew that what they would encounter when they rolled back the stone is not the stench of death, but the glory of God. You've got to notice the contrast. She was expecting the stench of decomposition. He knew that what they would find is the glory of recomposition. And I think in this, listen, you are supposed to see a picture of how God in all pain is working for good. In the pain in your life, you expect to find the decay of decomposition. But what you find is that when God finally rolls away the stone, you're gonna find that he has repurposed your pain for good and you don't encounter the stench of decay. What you find is the glory of what God has made new. Sometimes he rolls away that stone here on earth and you get to see what he was doing. You get to see the glory of recomposition. Has that not happened to you? Have you not ever gone through a season where you're like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Why aren't you answering my prayers? And like four or five years later, you look back, you're like, thank God that you were doing that during my life because you were preparing me. Thank God you didn't answer the prayer the way I prayed it. Thank God I did not marry that girl. Thank God this did not happen. I, I didn't see what you were doing now, but now I see that you were doing. Don't you have places in your life where you can see that? Sometimes he rolls back the stone and lets you see it now. But see, there are other times that you don't get to see him roll away the stone, at least in this life. But when you go into eternity and you see, because rest assured, this story shows you that he will roll away every stone. And you will see that in all things, like Paul said in Romans 8, 28, he was working for your good, just like he says he was. That he was working for your glory. What will overwhelm you when he finally rolls away that stone is not the stench of decomposition. It is the glory of how God made all things new and you will be confronted with the beauty of what he has recomposed, not the ugliness of what decomposed. And I know, listen, I know you can't see that now. I mean, just think about this logically. If you can already, already see a purpose for some of the suffering in your life, how God was using it for good, with just a few years, a limited amount of time, and just a little bit more perspective, don't you think that given enough time and an eternal perspective, you're gonna be able to see a reason for all of it? See, that's why Paul calls a believer's sufferings, get this, a light and momentary affliction. And before you write Paul off as a guy who probably lived a charmed life and did not experience pain, Scholars tell us that Paul's wife probably left him or died as a result of Paul's conversion. Paul spent most of his life in prison. Paul was beaten three times to within an inch of his life. He'd been through shipwrecks. He was, he was put out of his community. He spent most of his life running for his life. He knows pain, and he said all of it is light and momentary. And then he compared it to birth pangs. Birth pangs are terrible, or so I am told. Um, never really had them. In fact, it irritates me, those guys who say that my wife and I are pregnant. I'm like, no, you are not. Your part of that was pretty enjoyable, and then you were finished, right? <laughs> she's the one that carries the thing, and she's going to be in there and go out in labor, all right? So birth pangs are terrible, but as severe as they are, this is what my wife tells me, who's given birth to four children, as severe as they are, they are immediately swallowed up in the glory of the little child that is revealed to the point that you can't hardly remember the pain that led into the process. What you remember is how beautiful the moment was when you had the child. That's why you take a bunch of pictures around that time. What other really painful thing in your life do you take pictures of? Oh, here's me going in for appendix surgery, and here's me right after. You don't take pictures of like that, <laughs> right? You take pictures of that because the pain, the pain as intense as it is, is swallowed up in glory so that the glory so dwarfs the pain you don't even think about it. 
Doesn't mean your pain's not real. See, it just means you endure it differently. Or guys, let me explain it to you like this. Imagine you're in a hospital room and you hear somebody moaning in pain in the hospital room next to you. What emotion does that create in you? Well, it depends on why they're moaning, right? If it's a woman going through birth, you know, if she's going through labor, then yes, you feel sympathy for her, but you know that even in this pain, that, 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 that room she's in is about to be filled with rejoicing. If the person next to you is dying of bone cancer and this is the final stages of death and they're crying in despair, it creates a different emotion. Believers go through very intense pain, but Paul says it's always the pain of birth that is about to be overwhelmed by rejoicing. It is never the pain of despair because God is working in all things to take their decomposition and stamp it with resurrection and recomposition. Suffering in this life is real, but see, the next life is forever. And in light of forever, the pain of this moment will just disappear. I once heard a guy who described a recurring dream he had for about a year of his wife dying. He said, I could not get shake this dream. He said, he said it was just several times. I would have this horrible dream that my wife was dead. And she, it was so realistic. He said, but even with that terrible dream, he said, there was one sweet part of it. He said, my favorite time of every day was that first minute and a half after I'd woken up and I got to see that my wife was still alive. And he, the way he said it is this, and every sad thing in my dream became untrue. He's quoting there J.R.R. Tolkien from Lord of the Rings, who says that when we go into eternity, what happens is every sad thing becomes untrue. That God rolls away the stone, and what we find is not the stench of decomposition. What we find is the glory of recomposition, that God has stamped our suffering and our death with glorious resurrection, and he undoes it all and swallows it up forever. That's what, that's what, that's what Jesus is saying to Mary, or Martha. There's one other detail here before I go on to, to Mary's answer. There's one other detail that you can't miss. In fact, any treatment of Christian suffering that leaves out this detail is woefully deficient. You ready? Watch this. See that phrase, deeply moved? You see, if you're reading it, you saw it a couple times. It appeared once in verse 33 and once in verse 38. Scholars tell us that deeply moved is a terribly deficient English translation. But it's not like I can give you a better word. The problem is English just, just doesn't have a great word for the Greek word embromyomai. One scholar says that the word, if you wanted to translate it as literally as possible, you would put down snort. But that's awkward in English to say Jesus snorted a couple times throughout the story. Right? He says it really has the connotation of an animal snorting in anger as if getting ready to charge. John Calvin says that this word indicates Jesus is about to enter the ring like a wrestler preparing for a contest with his most hated foe. The violent tyranny of death, which he came to overcome, now stands in front of his eyes. So his groan is not one of sympathy. It is one of hatred as he is going into battle. Verse 43 says, he shouts at death in a loud voice. Snorting, yelling, shouting. You see what's happening here? You see this? This meek and mild? Is that what this is? Jesus is entering the ring with mankind's greatest enemy. If you're, if you, if you're writing a soundtrack for the Gospel of John, which I've told you about a couple times here, this is when you start playing the Rocky theme. All right, bomb, 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 bomb. This is when it starts. Now, here's the other thing that's interesting. John, the writer of this, points out in verse 47 that this event, the raising of Lazarus, is going to trigger the events that are gonna lead to Jesus' crucifixion. So in other words, Jesus is picking a fight in chapter 11 
that begins with him yelling and taunting and shouting and snorting at death, but it's gonna end eight chapters later in the crucifixion when Jesus goes full body contact with death, absorbs the, 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 the death that we deserved in our place and snaps the neck of death through his death forever. You see, the only way Jesus could interrupt the funeral of Lazarus was to commence his own funeral. So Jesus got Lazarus out of his death by going into his own. I'm just gonna tell you, as a dude, I love this. Because I always heard Jesus, you know, presented when he comes into salvation in these like soft, feminine, ter- no offense girls, but soft, feminine terms. Jesus knocks softly and tenderly. He comes in and gives you Holy Ghost kisses and eternal snuggles, you know. He cleans up your house. He does your dirty dishes. And I'm sure all that is correct. But this is a man shouting at the greatest enemy ever to face those that he loved and destroying that enemy by taking it into a chokehold and bringing it down to the grave and saying, even if it kills me, I'm not letting this touch those people that I love. That's a, you see what I'm saying? That, that does something to me. It's like, it's like these, um, it's like these uh, 9-11 movies that you know, came out 10, 11 years ago and they've been showing them recently because of the, you know, remembering the, the tragedy. There's this one scene in one of them where there's a firefighter that is trying to get to this woman that's buried in the rubble and, um, and he can't do it, he, he, he can't get to her. So he turns and he leaves and he's going to get help so they can get two or three people to lift this stuff off her and the woman is just in despair. She's like, no sir, please don't leave me. I can't get out, don't leave me. And this guy stops and he turns around and he says, leave you. He says, that's what our job is, we don't leave. He says, what we put on this uniform because we'll never leave, we'll come here and we will get you out. And I'm watching that and I'm thinking, this is Jesus in John chapter 11 looking at Mary and Martha saying, leave, thinking I won't show up. That's why I came. I came to take this thing that scared you to death. I didn't come to run from it. I didn't come to avoid it. I came so I could go head on with it and put it away forever so that it would never have to scare you again. That's what's going on. Leave you? Leave you? This is what I came to do. I will never, I will never, not now, not ever will I leave. Now before we end this, let's go back and pick up Jesus' reaction to Mary. Because this is the second, right? It's a much shorter, much simpler reaction. You see, but it's just as important. And you've got to get it. Verse 32. Mary says, Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. Again, the exact same words. But notice the new detail, one new detail. When Jesus saw her weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And so Jesus started to weep. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have always thought these verses were a little odd. Did Jesus not know that in 10 minutes, Lazarus would be out of the grave and they would be reunited? Did Jesus not know at this moment that in 10 minutes, this is all going to be over and everybody's going to be hugging and saying, praise God, and Lazarus is going to be back as a part of the family? Did he not know that? Of course he knew that. He started off chapter 11 telling them that was going to happen. Well, if he knows that, then why didn't he right here at this moment just be like, stop crying. I'm going to fix it, okay? That's what I would have said. Like, stop crying. Why are you crying? I'm going to fix it. Just don't worry about it. Why weep with Mary if in 10 minutes the issue is going to be resolved? Why? To give you a picture of how Jesus goes through suffering with you. That's why. All these things, John says, are signs. Signs that give you a picture of eternal realities. You see, this is the reaction of a friend. Jesus addressed Martha as a teacher, philosopher. He gave her the answer. You see, Jesus snort as the Savior. 
right? Now you're seeing him weep as a friend. Because this is a reaction of one who feels the pain of those that he loves. You see, even when Jesus knows the pain is temporary, he knows what the pain feels like for you. And so he weeps with you because that's what a friend does. That's how I know my friends love me is they weep when I weep. That's how I know they care about me is because they mirror my emotion. When I hurt, they hurt. And Jesus is not just a savior and he's not just a teacher. He is a father and a friend. And when his children hurt, he hurts right along with them. And when they weep, he weeps. You see, 10 minutes is not that much different to Jesus than 10,000 years. And Jesus can already see the beautiful end to your story. For a parent that has lost a child and has wept the side of the grave at why their child would die, Jesus can already, already, he can see that moment when you walk into heaven and when you are reunited with that child. And he can see when that child is fully grown and you see them as everything that you hope they would be. He can already see that. He is already living in that moment because he is past, present, and future at all points and all time altogether. But he weeps with you. Because even though he can see that, he knows that your pain is painful. Because when you've lost somebody, as much as you tell yourself that you're going to see them again in eternity, it's still painful now. When you're lonely, it hurts. When you're in pain... When you hurt, sometimes what you need is not theological answers. What you need is the presence of a Savior who feels your pain and who weeps with you. What a friend we have in Jesus. He took our sin and our sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. He feels as his own every broken heart, every shattered dream, every sorrow because he is a father and a friend. You see, there was another time, at least one other that we know about, that Jesus wept. Only one other one recorded in Scripture. But nobody was there to weep with him. The Gospels tell us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would weep with such great anguish that it would make the capillaries in his face burst, and he would sweat great drops of blood. It's a medical condition that doctors call hematridosis. One of our, um, some of you may know this, but one of our pastors, Rodell, our pastors are Spanish campus. This summer, um, they were, he and his family were getting ready to leave the pool, and I uh, have three sons, youngest is three years old. They got her by the pool, dried them all off, were headed out to the car, and turn around, and their three-year-old's not there. And to what would it be every parent's absolute horror, Christopher, their three-year-old son, is at the bottom of the pool. They jump in, they get him out, they call the you know, EMS, they resuscitate him, Make a long story short, he's, he's, he's fine. He was, when they pulled him out, he wasn't breathing. He was unconscious, but they, they brought him back. Rodell told me, he said, later that night, he said, I was with our son. They asked to keep him overnight in the hospital. And I looked and said, he had all these little purple splotches all over his face. And I asked the doctor, what is that? And he said, your son, when he was drowning, was straining so hard trying to call for you. And that he's getting no answer that the strain caused these capillaries in his face to burst. And Rodell told me, he said, you know, he said, as terrible as that is for my son, here is the son of God who in the Garden of Gethsemane is under such great anguish that he calls out to God with such torment of soul that it makes the capillaries in his face not only burst, but he causes him to sweat great drops of blood and there is total silence from heaven because the father had turned his face away. 
So Jesus goes to his disciples, and he's like, why don't you stand with me? Why don't you weep with me? I came in John 11. I wept with you. When you had pain, I felt it. I wept with you. I cried with you. But they all fall asleep. And so Jesus dies friendless, and he dies godless. He died all alone. But because of that, I know that he'll never forsake me because he was forsaken so I would never have to be. He died so that all that could ever separate me from God would be removed, so I would never have a season of suffering where God would not hear me in my pain, where God would not weep with me in my pain. He cried alone and died alone, so that when I cry and I die, I'm never alone. That's what all this is about. It's not about how Jesus does miracles and, and, and you should ask him to, re- I mean, that's great, you should. But I'm telling you, it's about him doing a whole lot more than that. It is about him walking through death so that when you walk through death, it's not the same for you. I've told you this before, but a, a, a pastor by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, when he, this guy was about my age when his wife died. They went, they went to the funeral, and they um, were leaving the funeral, going to the graveside, and his 11-year-old daughter, his, 11 year, his wife had died, his 11-year-old daughter looks up at um, her daddy, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, what is the, what is the valley of the shadow of death? Because Barnhouse had referred to that in the eulogy, Psalm 23. And Barnhouse thought about how to explain this to an 11-year-old, and he said just at that time, this big old tractor trailer passed by on the left side of their car and cast a shadow to fell over the car, and he looks at his 11-year-old, and he says, sweetheart, would you rather be hit by that tractor trailer or would you rather be hit by its shadow? And she said, well, of course, Daddy, the shadow. And Barnhouse said to his daughter, he said, Jesus got hit with the truck of death and sin so that your mommy and you and me would only have to be passed by its shadow. So yes, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I don't walk through the valley of death. I walk through the shadow, but I never have to face abandonment. I never have to face condemnation. I never have to face corruption because Jesus faced all those things in my place and took them so that now I just pass through the valley and I can say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. And I know that even in those times where I feel abandoned, I am not because you were abandoned for me. And because you took the full, full brunt of abandonment and condemnation in my place, I know that even when I walk through that valley, I am not alone. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. He is there. He's always there. Why? Because he walked through the valley for you so that when you go through it, you don't have to go through it with the despair of those that are dying. You go through it with the hope, the pain, yes, but the hope of those who God is bringing glory out of. Never, never, never will he leave. Never, never will he turn his face away or not feel your pain. And sometimes you need to understand the theological answer but sometimes you simply need to know that he is there, that he is present, that he is fully committed to you, and that he's fully in control and doing exactly what he said he was gonna do. For those of you that are disappointed, what if Jesus appeared to you right now? Later this afternoon, just you, just shows up. He says, I just want you to know that this that you're going through, it's for my glory. It doesn't mean I'm out of control. It doesn't mean I don't love you. I'm just using it for my glory and for your good and I need you to be patient. If Jesus said that to you face to face, could you endure what you're going through right now? Could you hang on with the questions? Could you just walk? Of course you could. Because essentially that's why that story is in there for you. He didn't need to say it to you face to face, he said it to you in this story. Because hey, get this, anybody know where Lazarus is right now? Anybody? Anybody talk to Lazarus this week? Anybody got Lazarus on speed dial, we call him up and interview him real quick, anybody? Anybody in here? Oh, no, why not? Because Lazarus is dead. Because Lazarus went through this again. 
And Mary and Martha, if this is the way it went down, had to bury their brother another time. And this time, guess what? Jesus didn't show up. But don't you think they went through this, this next time with a little bit of an understanding that Jesus could speak and bring Lazarus out of a grave with a word? And if Jesus could speak and bring him out of a grave with the word and Jesus says, I'm never late, I'm always doing what I need to do, that the next time they went through this, they could do so with the assurance that Jesus was fully in control and that his love for them had not faltered, that his absence did not mean a lack of control or a lack of affection. Don't you think they knew that the next time that he went, they went through this? Of course they did, and so can you. That's why it's here. John 20, 31, these things are signs. They're just physical demonstrations of God's eternal plan. Now, one quick objection, all right, because I know you, I love you people, I'm your pastor, I know what you think. Some of you, especially you young professionals, yeah, well, maybe I'm suffering because I keep doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe I lost my job because I got bad work habits. Maybe I keep destroying potential marriage relationships because I've got, I've got annoying personal characteristics. That may be true. And that's why, listen, that's why God gave you the church. <laughs> to help you see that. God gave you a community like this so that the community can point out, hey, yeah, yeah, this is a problem in your life and this is causing this stuff. But that same community can help you see when it's not because you're doing something wrong, it's because of the sovereignty of God, that God just, for his glory and for your good, there's nothing you're doing wrong, it's just that God has appointed this. See, maybe you're in day two and Jesus is not showing up. Maybe you're in day four and Lazarus is dead. But see, what this story shows you is that he's there, he's coming. He gave you the church so that he could help you see that you're making wise decisions. That's why you gotta be connected. But he also gave you the church to see that God's sovereign plan sometimes works and when he seems like he's absent, he's not. And to those that are disappointed, wait till he rolls back the stone because he's doing something that doesn't have the stench of decay. It's got the glory of recomposition. So just hang on, hang on. Summit Church, do you realize that we worship at the feet of one who could speak a word and bring dead people out of the grave? Just a word. In fact, it was Augustine who said that if Jesus had not put the word Lazarus in front of that last command, every dead person in that cemetery would have walked out. Just a word. If that's what he can do with our greatest enemy, death, what is there that he can't do in your life? Do you realize this is the Jesus that works in you? This is the Jesus that works through you. This is the Jesus that walks with you. This is not a prophet who gives you a helpful to-do list of moralisms and piety that he wants you to perfect. This is a savior who conquered death on your behalf and gave himself up so that you could have eternal life. That requires a different kind of response, a fundamentally different kind of response. If he's just a prophet and a teacher, then yeah, you come to church every once in a while, learn some of his wisdom, throw some trinkets in the offering plate, and go on with your life. But if he really is this right here, if he's the one that speaks and dead people get out of the graves, and if he went into the grave for you, that demands a different kind of response. That's where you start saying things like, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's just different. Some of you are still relating to Jesus like he's a prophet, not like he's this. He is the one who took on your greatest enemy and saved you. And that requires something different. Every week of this series, I've given you a chance to respond to Jesus if you have not before. Are you really going to resist him? Are you really going to put him off? Do you realize that nobody in the world is exempt from the problem that he's dealing with here, the problem of death? 
the death rate is still holding steady at 100%. At 100%. It's not showing any signs of wavering. You're going to die. Jesus died so that when you died, you wouldn't really have to. And without him, you were absolutely hopeless. Are you really going to keep putting this off? At all of our campuses, in just a minute, what's going to happen is we're all going to stand up. And just like we've done every week, I'm going to get some counselors. They're going to be at the back of every one of our campuses. I don't want you to come forward. I want you to go backwards. If you've never received Jesus, you see, coming to church a lot and just learning stuff, that doesn't do it. It's got to be a personal decision where you surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life. You've got to personally decide to receive the gift. We would love to pray with you about that and show you what that looks like and how to take those steps. So I got people at the back of, of, uh, of our campuses, and when we stand up, I just want you to step out in the aisle, whichever one's closest to you, and make your way back. I know that's nervous for some of you, and you're like, that's a big deal. Yeah. The person that came with you, your friend, just ask them. I promise you they'll go with you. You guys go together. Let us deal with this so that you personally surrender and receive this Jesus. It's a gift. you got to receive it. Let me open that up one more way, though. Some of you have received Jesus. You know that you belong to him, but you've been disappointed. You just need to pray with somebody because your heart's broken. Let us be the body of Christ to you. We got prayer counselors back there that would just, man, they will take you and they will, you can pour your heart out to them and you guys can just pray. Let us be that. So regardless of which category you're in, whether you need to receive Jesus or whether you just need to pray with somebody because your heart's broken, either way, as soon as we stand up at every campus to worship, you just in one motion step out, go to the right, the left, or wherever, and you go back and you, you talk to somebody. Our counselors are getting in place now. Our worship teams, all of our campuses are getting in place. I'm going to stand you up, and when I do, if you need to pray, you slip out and you, and you go back to them. All right? This would not be a great time to go to the bathroom. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that, because otherwise you might get saved on the way to the bathroom. And if that's not your intention, <laughs> you should just know that, okay? All right, here we go. Let's everybody stand to their feet. You step out and go if you need to.